Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Jack Buffington, who's Director of Supply Chain and Sustainability at First Key Consulting and Professor and Academic Director of the Supply Chain Management Program at the University of Denver. He's the author of several books, including The Recycling Myth, Peak Plastic, and his latest just published, which we uh, we will be discussing, Reinventing the Supply Chain, a 21st Century Covenant with uh, America. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empire, Professor Buffington. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you, you noticed how we've almost got matching shirts, so that happens uh, uh, sometimes. I guess we can thank the supply chain for that. But um, uh, you know, I, I've been reading your book. Uh, I, I do very much uh, enjoy it, and I think it's an important topic that we have to be looking at more and more. Supply chains, right? Uh, we're talking about globalization, deglobalization, nearshoring, reshoring. In the face of so many things that are going on, the pandemic, the Ukraine war. Uh, and, uh, you know, decoupling from China. And maybe a good place to start is to look at how great America used to be in manufacturing and supply chain and how we lost it. Uh, you discussed, you know, after World War II, the U.S. economy was the largest globally with no other nation even close. And, um, you know, how this relates to the actual war where the government was afraid that with the end of the war, with the end of the war machine economy, tens of millions of Americans would be put out of work. They transitioned from government-directed command and control wartime economy to a new consumer economy. So if you if, you know, if you can sort of start us off there on uh, how was America before and then how we sort of what, what happened and, and how we transi transitioned out of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's, it's a very uh, comprehensive answer to that question. So I'll try to keep it short. Um, the United States became the world's leader when it came to supply chain and manufacturing through principles of structured problem solving, uh, which, you know, uh, basically industry started through the power of fossil fuels, right? So, uh, you know, I tell people that there wasn't a thing such as a supply chain before fossil fuels. There was globalization, uh, but that's much different than what's happened since with supply chain. So, um, Oil has been the lubricant and the glue has been organization and structure and process. Um, so that was what allowed the United States to become the world leader in manufacturing, um, help the United States win the war, you know, be the leader in World War II through material production. And if you look at the production of tanks and planes and everything like that, you know, it was enormous. Uh, but then, like you mentioned, there was this problem after the war, like we, we have all this manufacturing capacity, we don't have any demand. Um, you know, the United States was was uh, was really a focus on a supply economy. And then after that transition to a consumer economy, um, supply chains are the uh, complete demonstration of capitalism. So through the capacity of supply chains expanded across the world through shipping technology. Uh, next thing you know, the United States moves from being a supply based economy to a consumer based economy to which. Uh, still, still is the case today. And now we're seeing a breakdown of globalization and supply chains through what's happening with geopolitics. One topic I hope we get into is what's happening regarding to demographics, which is decline of the world's population, which is also playing into it. So we're in a, a fascinating time when it comes to what's happening in the world and in the supply chain. Riots across Europe, unprecedented food and energy inflation, increasing military conflict around the globe, and a rising digital police state. The fourth turning is here, and so is the Expat Money Summit, the free online event 
expatmoneysummit.com is back and will help you navigate these turbulent times. Featuring dozens of renowned experts such as Dr. Ron Paul, international man Doug Casey, Jim Rogers, and Mark Faber, the summit will reveal how you can reclaim your freedom abroad, reduce your tax bill, protect your wealth, obtain multiple citizenships and residencies, become part of a like-minded global community, and more. Founder of expatmoney.com, Mikhail Thorup, will be your guide on this journey to protect yourself from economic collapse, World War III, authoritarian Western regimes, and Klaus Schwab's Great Reset. Simply go to expatmoneysummit.com and enter your email to reserve a free ticket to the event. Do it now. Maybe this topic will sound boorish for some listeners, but uh, you know, I can't, I can't be having the same old, you know, sort of topics that I deal with. And I, you know, as myself as a former professor, it's important to understand um, the things that Professor Buffington talks about uh, to, un, to better understand what, what's happening in, in the world. And there are a lot of things, uh, especially in the first half of your book, that are fascinating, that are um, new to me. And uh, you also discuss how these capitalist planners uh, discussed ending the depression through planned obsolescence i mean we all have exa examples i can remember you know 20 years ago when i was a teenager i bought a panasonic stereo and literally uh, after the one-year warranty finished like the day after uh the the lens on the cd reader uh, stopped working and so could you tell us more about uh you know how this planned obsolescence also uh was important in keeping these things going yeah, so what happened was, is that the first generation after World War II, uh, you know, mind you, in the United States and a bunch of countries faced two world wars, they faced the Great Depression. And so, you know, they unleashed the consumer. And so the consumers were all excited about getting a refrigerator and a car. Uh, but then, you know, the, the, the companies were like, well, what happens after that? You know, what happens? You know, how do we encourage more consumption? So this, tool called marketing came about, uh, which, by the way, uh, the the founder of marketing, uh, whose uncle was a guy named Sigmund Freud. So he he used, you know, the use of technology or of psychology to get people to not buy what they need, but buy what they want. And then, you know, tie it to social status and everything like that. So that was one way that you could expand um, demand. The other way of ex expanding demand is for things like you mentioned to run out at a certain point in time. Uh, and that first started off with how they made things. But to in today's world, uh, the level of quality in the products that we have are really, really high. And so it's not a matter as much as something breaking down, but it is more of like a single use. Um, you know, when it comes to fashion and consumer products is that, you know, like if when I was a kid, if I got a, a hole in my my pants, I was like scared to go home because my mom would have to patch it. Where now you just throw it away. So it changed us as how we not only how we produce, but how we consume. And it really changed our culture. And this is all due to these supply chains where, you know, that pair of jeans that I mentioned to you uh, cost about 80 cents to ship. You know, made in Malaysia or Indonesia or somewhere like that. So you can imagine, you know, the the ability to increase demand and profit through these global supply chains. Uh, yeah, and and there's something interesting. I I didn't pull the quote. I thought I did, but um, you also talked about 
shipping containers. Uh, again, a lot of us take this for granted. We buy our stuff. Uh, people buy on Amazon, and then it'll get shipped from across the planet. But it's really, I think, interesting to understand. Um, and and uh, you, you briefly mentioned how you know th this came about. The, the, sh the you know how someone many decades ago uh, developed you know the first shipping container to to um, and 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 system. Could you tell us a little bit about? Uh, that sort of system, uh, how it came to be, you know, uh, how shipping containers are, are one of the key ways um, we, we get our stuff today. Yeah, so there's two, um, there's two um, move, I guess, containers uh, that are used in supply chain. One is something called a pallet, uh, and if you go into a Costco, you'll see, you know, all the all the uh, materials that are sitting on top of pallets. So that's how we move things around a country. And then someone thought, well, maybe we need to do, we needed to standardize how we move things around the planet because before they would just put things on ships. Um, but, you know, there was only so much capacity on the ship. But if you cube it, which means you put no matter what the shape of the product is in a cube, which is, you know, a 20 or 40 foot container, you've seen those ships that have like seven stories, eight stories of containers. So that just not, that by that standardization, now all of a sudden you don't have things coming into the United States different from Malaysia versus China and then back and forth. So you can imagine how much capacity now we have to ship things around the world, as well as um, being able to reduce the costs, which also another important fact to know about this, it unleashed the number of people in the world who can work in manufacturing. So right now we have hundreds of thousands of people who want to do manufacturing, which unfortunately, well, fortunately it keeps our costs down, but unfortunately it also brings down labor costs, which means, you know, we'll never make a pair of jeans in the United States ever again. That, yeah, that that is uh, fascinating. You know, there, there might be small businesses right that produce jeans in america but uh their their uh market base might be small because they'll have to um, sell them for a much higher price no no nah, not really i mean you know I, I guess there is some boutique or something like that uh, but for the most part i mean there are opportunities for manufacturing in the united states where i talk about in my book i mean i grew up in an old rust belt city of baltimore which has never recovered from what happened in the supply chain uh so politicians who suggests that we need to make things that we used to make are demagogues. You know, they're just doing that to pander for votes instead of being more imaginative and figuring a new way to bring people back into manufacturing. Yeah. And you, as you mentioned the Rust Belt, uh, you spend a portion of your book discussing the consequences you know, of what has happened in, in the United States, the deindustrialization. Uh, if I read it correctly, you compare uh, some of those effects to you know, I think slavery and the treatment of Native Americans and how, in, you know, many places, the steel industry, for example, has has been eviscerated and how the manufacturing of the mid 20th century. I mean, th that just in, that that would, uh, you know, you talk about how entire towns like the, the demographics, there just increased by the tens and tens of thousands. And then uh, after it all ended, it just kind of collapsed and and maybe if you could tell us a bit about uh the effects uh on america yeah i can tell you a personal story um i grew up in baltimore and i grew up right in the midst of deindustrialization. so um baltimore is a seaport town um used to have uh one of the largest shipyards in the world uh was known for you know 
being one of those arsenal of democracy cities that helped the United States win World War II. My relatives worked in blue collar jobs, worked in those fields. And then as I was growing up, I started to see all that just come apart. The people um, knew the jobs were leaving. They didn't know where they were going. They just knew that they weren't there. So, you know, family members I had where, you know, the, the father worked, the, the mother stayed at home um, and, you know, was able to live a good, solid middle class lifestyle. That all just disappeared. So what happened is um, everybody who could leave cities like Baltimore, Flint, Michigan, or two cities that I mentioned, they left. Um, and then, you know, all that was left was a lower tax base and people who couldn't get out. And so, you know, to, to shift to the story of Flint, um, used to be called Vehicle City, uh, was, was really where, um, you know, automobile manufacturing was, was started. And so eventually everything left Flint. Um, and then the tax base went down. The city went bankrupt. The governor of Michigan took over the city and decided to save money and the water source instead of re receiving water from Lake Huron, they received it from the Flint River. Problem is the Flint River was never remediated when GM left town. And so the water was not in the, in the circumstance to drink. And then next thing you know, you have a water crisis. So these circumstances that happen, water crisis in Flint, riots in, in uh, Baltimore, these are not, you know, without any sort of cause effect with what happened in deindustrialization. And most people don't experience this because cities like Flint and cities like Baltimore are, are drive around towns. Uh, there's parts in, in the United States that we call flyover country. We're all parts of the country where nobody really pays attention to. But these used to be the places where textiles were made and coal was was mined. And these places are now experiencing crises in the uh, number of people who live in the towns, opioid um, epidemic, pandemic that's happening where people are really very upset. And so you see this political divide that's happening of people who feel like they're on the outside. Uh, I trace a lot of those roots to deindustrialization, something that slowly happened over 40, 50 years. Yeah. And I, I've been uh, in my travels this year in the US, I've been noticing, uh, especially, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. So you see, again, increasing um, crime, economic problems, homelessness. I was in Texas recently in Austin and uh, people living there that I know and myself, I was just shocked to see the level that the increased homelessness, which I think has to do with, as you say, the deindustrialization, uh, the higher cost of living and, and inflation, um, the erosion of the, the middle class blue collar jobs, as you uh, mentioned. You know, it, it used to be uh, many, you know, I, I'm a Croatian American. Um, many of my, you know, my father and, and his peers came in to the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, not even speaking English. And they were able to, you know, build a, you know, a nice middle class lifestyle where the the wife didn't even have to work. Uh, I think those days are long uh, gone. And you, you mentioned demographics uh, also. What what's important for us to know regarding demographics? Yeah. So so first, before I move on to demographics, is that the the numbers regarding what you and I just talked about are shocking. Uh, like one book reviewer called my book a diatribe because. He expected me just to talk about the technical aspects of supply chain. And what I try to do is 
dig into the roots to under to explain to people how supply chains have impacted society. Uh, because you know, you said some people may find supply chain boring. And yeah, like how you ship or an inventory and everything like I teach in my classes. You know, if you're a non-supply chain person, you may see those things as boring. But what, what's surprising to me is how people have not been able to make the connection between what's happened in these, these boneyards of America's industry and what's happened to society. And when you see homeless people and opioid problems and you see these problems and not drawing the correlation of what's happened for 40 years. Now, to your question regarding demographics, another thing that's happening in the supply chain today, and it's not just happening in the United States. It's happening around the world, and I've, I've been in China twice this year. Uh, it's shocking what's happening regarding the globalization related to population declines. Um, I think there's like 194 countries in the world, and more than half of them are experiencing um, a population growth that's lower than what the natural rate needs to be. I think uh, the natural rate needs to be 2.1 children for every female. Uh, in most countries, uh, and not just, you know, European countries that you suspect, like Germany, Belgium, and places like that. But China is experiencing major demographic or population declines, South Korea, all the Asian countries. Um, the United States is, but we have a really healthy immigration system, so that allows us. But, you know, regarding this balance between supply and demand, so we've had 40 or 50 years of deindustrialization, which has created this global supply chain where there's an imbalance between who, what, who's producing and who's consuming. And now you're ripping that fabric even greater after COVID with these population declines. And the problem isn't not having enough workers because you can automate and use technology. The problem is not having enough consumers. And that's what's creating the greatest challenge we're having right now in our supply chains. Yeah, I mean, I got so many questions. You also mentioned that uh, I think you begged that question in the future. Uh, I, I guess I'll get to it. It's it's a uh, loss somewhere somewhere here in my notes. But you mentioned COVID. Um, you know what? What? How would you assess the impact that you know from twenty twenty uh, until even you know today the the impact that the uh, COVID and the government response has been uh, to the supply chain. Yeah, so before COVID, I started, uh, I built a supply chain program at the University of Denver. Nobody wanted to talk about supply chain then. I never got any media requests from, from our public relations department at the university. And next thing you know, COVID happens. And this precarious balance between supply and demand started to break down. And, you know, you heard the stories about toilet paper, which, by the way, what's important for people to understand is, is that you know, certain products are not the same with what you use at home versus what you use in like a commercial setting. So, you know, the toilet paper you get at home or the steaks you eat are different than the ones you buy at a restaurant. So there was an imbalance between those products. And what we saw with COVID was basically opening everybody's eyes, what was broken to the supply chain that some people have seen for 40 years, which you and I just talked about. Um, but some people didn't notice these things because it didn't impact them because they work in in service and everything like that. Next thing you know, you know, forget about like steaks and, and toilet paper and beer, but like now we're talking about pharmaceuticals, you know, like 
you know, your 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 parents' um, chemotherapy session was canceled because they didn't have the drug, or we don't have enough PPE to, to fight a pandemic. And next thing you know, people started paying attention to this. But the moral of the story is, is that this was just a continuation of what was broken over 40 years. And so after COVID ended, um, everybody expected the world to go back to normal, but the world's largest manufacturing country, China, has not gotten back to normal since COVID. And what's happening is the global structure of how supply chains work is the capacity is still there, but the demand isn't. And so like a lot of the things that happened in COVID have already been addressed. It's led to higher prices because basically companies carry more inventory um, because they try to be safer about things. And so more inventory means more costs. But just in general, how trade flows around the world has not recovered since COVID. It will never be what it was before COVID. It will be different. And so what I um, talk about in my book is, and by the way, I wrote this before COVID, um, is that we need a new model of supply chain to account for what needs to happen in the future. Yeah, I, I want to get to that in a bit, and and you know one one more thing uh, you, you touch on. We're hearing a lot of calls for nearshoring, reshoring, for bringing manufacturing uh, regional. You know, pulling away from China. We're seeing here in Mexico uh, a lot of the FDI is increasing foreign direct investment. Uh, uh, nearshoring is 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 happening. Uh, someone told me recently that works in um, uh, industry here in Mexico that their higher ups had a meeting. Uh, and they were talking about how they are planning to pull away from China because they're expecting a war uh, with China. We, we hear a lot of that talk. So th that's interesting. But then you, you also write, um, I'm going to read a quote, during these serious challenges related to COVID and global conflict, nations must continue to focus on the natural resources required to power their economies. Um, I thought this was an interesting note. You say, consider an average of 10,000 pairs of jeans in a 20-foot container the cost to ship across the ocean has increased to a dollar a pair versus 15 cents a pair earlier which is not a material cost increase on a 70 dollars piece of clothing the media has made a big deal over this so-called supply chain crisis but the calculus still favors these global systems any calls for the reshoring of supply chains have their work uh, ahead of them to make the math work favorably and so uh you know thoughts on this idea of nearshoring or reshoring or, or creating these regional economies yeah so great, great uh, question. Um, so the FBI, the, the investment into China has been dropping off a cliff. Uh, investments into places like Mexico have been increasing. But we need to keep in mind that, the, that China has 1.3 billion people and Mexico is like 60 million, right? hundred. So, well, double, we've got about 120 million now. Okay. So sorry, got that wrong. But still, right? It's 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 a magnitude of 1.2 or something like that. So, um, so for all intent and purposes, for this North American supply chain to work, Mexico needs a Mexico, right? Um, so what's going to happen is like manufacturing in Mexico is going to increase. Hopefully, it'll move farther into the south. You know, expand the ca capacity of manufacturing down into the south. Um, but still, from a capacity standpoint, it's way short. Um, there needs to be greater infrastructure investments. Your point about the genes, what makes China, China is its amazing infrastructure. 
um, in, in, inland infrastructure and uh, port infrastructure. So, you know, there has been conversations about India and, you know, it's called friend shoring. So moving away from China into countries that are more friendly with the United States. But these countries do not have the capital investment in their infrastructure to be competitive with China. So, yeah, you see it. You see this so-called movement away from China. I think some of it is uh, Pollyannish. I don't think it's possible. Uh, I think it's harmful. Um, the other, the other thing that's good about you know direct investments between the United States and China is countries that trade with each other are less likely to go to war. Um, because people like us, you know, I've been over there. They're great people, right? It's just this: you get into these you know, tariffs and, you know, then you get into a shooting battle and next thing you know, um, you know, things start to break down. So I think there's great hope um, for, you know, this North American supply chain. But I think right now it's more theory than it is in practice. Right. And then another uh, key question is the demand aspect, which you touched on. I'm going to read a few quotes here. You write, Quote, uh, Amazon's investments are exceptional with 40% of its pr- procurement automated, soon to be 80%, leading to cost savings of 3 to 10%. But by aiming to delight co- uh, consumers with tighter fulfillment windows, wider selection and lower costs, and increasingly widening disconnect continues to take shape between us as workers and as shoppers in this hyper-competitive model. You talk about uh, Schumpeter's creative destruction. And how today's uh, calculus increasingly favors the consumer and investor, and disfavors workers and citizens. Talk about Alvin Toffler, uh, who talks, uh, who uh, describes the post-industrial society, implying that manufacturing is no longer a requirement for the American economy. But the Amazon thing, you, you, you know, one more. You say as Amazon continues to delight customers with faster, more convenient, and lower cost ways of buying products. The question is. Who will be buying products from them once robots and AI bots are running the entire supply chain? And does this consumption model only succeed when it continues to require us to buy more stuff? And I think a lot of us have been asking these questions. Uh, what happens when Skynet uh, becomes self-aware? Uh, you know, what's going to go on there? This is this this is the major question, and it's been around since the 1950s. There's a story of you know. One of the union guys was walking around a factory with Henry Ford Jr. And Henry Ford Jr. said, hey, I have these new robots. Um, how are you going to get them to pay dues? And the union guy said, well, that's not what I'm worried about. And Henry Ford said, what are you worried about? He said, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? Um, so this has been around for 70 years, right? This this question of use of technology. And so... Um, Right now, the way it's heading, um, again, we're, we're talking about demographics, fewer people, um, you know, so it doesn't seem like we have a labor problem because, you know, like if even in the United States, you know, unemployment is low. But if you look at the types of jobs that are available, um, part of the reason why unemployment is low um, and it doesn't seem that way is some people have two or three jobs to pay for things. Right. So. The problem is technology is moving up the the um, hierarchy into jobs like that people are white collar professionals like me and you would take, um, and then you get into a problem of you know everybody's employed but nobody can afford things, and especially when you have you know what's happening right now with commodities prices are higher. Um, you get into this you know I think we're in this vicious cycle right now where. The supply, the supply chain and the approach to government spending 
is unsustainable and you're starting to see that happening. Um, a lot of people don't think that we're going to, you know, we could potentially go into a recession with what's happening in China and a global economy. And there's no good answers in sight. So the question that I pose in the book is how do you use this technology instead of commoditizing goods and commoditizing labor to enable labor, to enable growth? Um, and that's that's one area that hasn't been much in discussion. Yeah, and 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 before getting to that, uh, well, you mentioned we're white collar, although today we're blue collar. Uh, but I know, I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> I'm just gonna help myself. But um, also the the uh, the Ukraine war's impact on the supply chain. You know, one of the biggest topics has been uh, the grain. You know, the, the wheat's coming out of of Ukraine, and then the transit routes through the Black Sea being blocked and so forth. And uh, what impact has the the war in Ukraine had on supply chains? Well, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation with a client earlier today. Um, you know, the expectations of the impact has been much different than it than uh, it's played out. Now, as is always the case when it comes to um, instability in supply chains, it's the poorest who always pay the greatest price. So, you know, poor countries um, in Middle East and Africa have had you know problems with food shortages for sure. Um, but the impact on Europe has not been much at all. In fact, you know, uh, you know, I work in the beer industry, so we talk about aluminum. Um, and so there was expectations that energy prices were going to equal the actual cost of aluminum itself and that you would no longer be doing manufacturing in um, Europe. Well, goes to, to show, despite the fact that there's a war, um, uh, European countries are buying as much aluminum from Russia as they did before. So the big uh, Russian aluminum company called Rusal, um, a third of their uh, revenue is from European, from Europe. And so everybody thought that that would disappear. You know, there's tariffs from the UK and the US, but there's still the flow of products. In fact, um, energy is the same way. I mean, there's ways that energy, even with um, tariffs and embargoes, that, you know, if you mix a certain amount of um you know, if you ship it from one location, it it can come into Europe. So, you know, the supply chain basically operates around these problems. Um, it has led to greater inflation, but for the most part, the impact of what's been talked about is, is not as great as, as everybody initially thought. I think there's bigger problems at hand. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you about China, because, uh, you know, here's just a quote from a book. You say production accounts for 27% of China's economy and 20% of the world's output versus the U.S. at 12% and 18%. From a Chinese perspective, its intentions are not to control global supply chains and markets per se, but rather to ensure market stability and independence from U.S. companies. The reality is that China faces domestic economic challenges equal to, if not more significant than that of the United States. In the Wall Street Journal, I think just uh, recently published uh, uh, something along these lines uh, as well that China is facing uh, problems. I mean, everyone's facing problems, but China might be facing greater problems. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, your thoughts on China's situation as, as well as, um, you know, Belt and Road, which you touch on in the book. Yeah. So China is a big nation without the same degree of resources that other big nations like Russia, the United States, Canada have, right? So, it's very much uh, reliant on energy from other nations. It's 
relying on food from other nations. Um, and so its workforce was the driving factor of what you know took a very poor country in the 20th century into the second largest economy in the world. Um, you know, that, that it is today. Um, it's very much of a controlled economy um, that has to do with the culture of China, you know, 2000 year old um, country with, you know, more of a controlled um, politics, controlled economy, which thwarts um, innovation and thwarts capital. Um, the capital moved to China based on low labor rates um, and, and fantastic infrastructure because the country just dumped a bunch of money building ports, building bridges, buildings, you know, sky rises. If you go there, you just see everything built, right? So everybody moved from the farms into the cities. Um, and so um, that led to, you know, more stable economic situation it led to less poverty. They pulled hundreds of millions of people from out of poverty, but it's reached its point of, of what it's been able to do. And China realizes that they need to be able to be more self-reliant as opposed to making toys and making, you know, water bottles and stuff like that. And I think that's where the problem with innovation has become a problem. Um, and people are moving away from China because of labor costs you know, geopolitics, things like that. Um, and the country needs to have a economic growth rate of like eight or 9% in order to continue to pull more people from out of poverty. It's not growing at that rate. Um, the young generation does not have the same opportunities as their parents. Um, and so you've already had the, the, you know, the one child policy that reduced populations. And now that's been liberated, but nobody can afford to have kids. And so it's perpetuating into a greater problem. So, you know, as much as everybody looks at China and says, well, they're the next world superpower, they need a lot of help. Um, and I, like I said, I've been over there and I've tried to help on some things. And I would definitely suggest that they have greater challenges when it comes to what's happening moving forward than we have. So I, I don't fear things as much. I wish there wasn't as much animosity between the governments. Because uh, I think the two economies really need each other, and I think that's that's another area that got is actually pulling down the world economy is this this geopolitical tension. So, um, yeah, I, I I definitely have concerns about what's happening in China, and I think it's bad for world stability. And again, like focusing on the big problems that we need to work on together, like pandemics and environmental you know, challenges and stuff like that is, is again, that's going to continue to hurt the, the world economy. I've had experts on the podcast uh, in the past couple of years mention how the problem is now that all nations are facing this problem where there's no more growth. And then the game is, is not being able to outgrow or, or defeat the other, your adversary. Uh, it's to be that everything's, you mentioned the, the demographics, you know, the debt levels that governments have, like this sort of collapse scenario, uh, and that the, the, the game is you want to be the last one, uh, to collapse. And so countries are kind of, I, I think that's, it's kind of like an inverted way of looking at it. And I think that also makes some, uh, sense. And then maybe to discuss. Can I, can I comment on that? That's, that, that's an example of how capitalism has been bastardized over the last hundred years. That's, 
you know, that's a lack of original thinking of how to solve the problem. So what has allowed the, the world to grow, the world economy to grow? If you look at like any chart that looks at, you know, economic growth over the first 2000 years of civil, you know, the last 2000 years of civilization has been nothing. And then starting in the late 19th century, it just takes off like a rocket ship. And then it starts to plateau in the 21st century right now. And so you have policymakers and economists who are trying to, you know, use the same methodologies, which you just mentioned, to grow the economy when it's clear that it needs to take a new new approach. And so I just think that that's just really unfortunate that like that's how we're going to try to like look at how I mean, like if you if you look at what Cap, what Adam Smith wrote about, you know, capitalism and how it should be perpetual, you know, propagated. We've just lost that in, in what's happening today. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. You mentioned Malthus and how he was uh, wrong. And then um, the way forward, then let's look at that. You talk about a 21st century uh, American dream, uh, Massa, make uh, America smart uh, <laughs> uh, again. And that uh, it can neither be, neither be a restoration of manufacturing's past nor the transition transition of all Americans to white collar knowledge work uh you talk about a 21st century supply chain system uh you know maybe through another manhattan project or uh marshall plan and so if you want to tell us a bit more about uh, the way forward yeah so you know I, I i go back to adam smith and you know it's kind of eerie um so adam smith was around in the, the end of the 18th century and he was he he promoted this concept. He didn't call it capitalism. We call it him the father of capitalism. But basically, he talked about deploying capital to the greatest area of opportunity, as opposed to you know government and these mercantilists um, hoarding capital for their own benefit, as opposed to enabling society. And so, this term capitalism has been used as this concept of free market capitalism of Letting big companies um, monopolize, you know, technology and innovations, which is, you know, if which is kind of a problem today, as opposed to liberating capital and technology to enabling more of a balance between supply and demand. And so, in my book, what I talk about is this concept of a community-based supply chain where the the municipality invests the capital and the technology, and then it allows the people who live in that municipality to use that capital or use that um, technology for a utility fee. So it's not something that's run by the government, but it's the same thing as, as a water utility or an electrical utility where you allow people to create their own supply chains without needing capital to do so. Because you know innovators today are prohibited from from solving problems because they don't have the capital to be able to do it because big companies like Facebook and and all these big companies um, basically leave people on the outside because they can't afford to to achieve it. So this is, in my opinion, how Adam Smith would view capitalism today. He would look at um, capitalism today and say, "Well, this is the same problem that we had in the 18th century where." The capital is only being deployed for big companies. We call them today multinational corporations or big governments. And then we have these conversations of 
do we, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of the government or I'm in favor of the corporation where Adam Smith would tell you they're both doing the same thing. And so I look at this as a liberation of technology through supply chains. And um, it's it's the way we can solve the supply and demand problem in places like Baltimore and Flint and, and rural towns. It's interesting you mentioned uh, in your book, a potpourri of mass media television news options must compete with the maker's market of do-it-yourself media through podcasts. Like that. That's why you're on uh, Geopolitics and Empire now. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people are losing faith in the mainstream. That's why they listen to do-it-yourself podcasts like li- little old uh, me. But you talk about the uh, value chain nodal supply chain is moving in the same direction today, uh, being prototyped through hobbyists and STEM enth- enthusiasts in the hacker sphere. It will ultimately become the new supply chain, a virtual one that exists in the physical world available to all. You also talk about you know how can Amazon, a company worth $1.5 trillion, make money by shipping products for free uh, for prime members uh, that this 21st century model built uh, on this new value proposition and used by big tech consistently serves a different purpose in the market setting and could become the basis of a valuable new american dream model for individuals and communities and this uh you know an american silk silk road and you know thoughts on that and um i i'm also curious you know how does amazon make uh so much money i mean are they doing a good job or do do, do, do they have a huge debt i mean how do they uh succeed so um the reason why amazon is amazon is they are the world leader when it comes to data centers so they are an information-based company um they have trucks that go all over the place but they win through information so they gather information about you they have algorithms they try to predict what you're going to buy. They try to suggest what you should buy in order to be able to keep their inventory levels low. Uh, and then what they try to do is try to commoditize the rest of the supply chain, how the warehouses work, how the products get to your doorstep. Uh, and then, you know, to your point, they don't focus as much on prop, on profitability as they do on growth. But again, what's what we just talked about is now you've commoditized the um, you've commoditized the consumer. So we're just people clicking buttons and getting things at our doorstep. You've just commoditized the people who work at the distribution center. You've just commoditized the truck driver who's got to speed around your neighborhood in order to hit these numbers. So the whole model is commoditized. Um, and so how do you beat, you know, how does this model, how does the story end? I mean, Walmart and Amazon are competing against each other. They just keep, you know, having shipping costs lower. Instead of you getting it in two days, you get it in one day. Instead of you getting it for one day, you get in a half a day. Um, and all that ends up doing is taking away the, it, it commoditizes supply and demand experience. So we all just become consumers and people who are a part of this demand chain as opposed to what I talked about was a value chain where we focus on supply chains that enable us to succeed. We enable people to get back into the supply chain by, like you mentioned, being makers. Um, you know, I want to be a truck driver. So I create my own company across this value chain where I can run my own truck and I can work for you. So it's utilization of, of information not just for $1.5 trillion companies, but for individuals like us. And, and you use the term that I call in the book, we all become nodes. So we connect to each other in uh, flexible ways as opposed to 
these big companies dominating how things operate. One problem you also discuss is the digital divide. So this mean this would mean that um, you'd have to build out like internet infrastructure uh, and then get people, you know, the, the maybe and the the el- more elderly generation or conservative crowd or whatever um, to start learn how to use these these apps. Although I think with the next generation that probably won't be a problem. But thoughts on the the digital divide. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a bigger problem than is advertised because there is a difference between the education you get in certain places. Um, you know, the educational system that we have today in a lot of public school systems is the same education system that was put in place 100 years ago when we were looking at training people to run an assembly line. You know, we haven't changed it for inner cities. We haven't changed it for rural towns. Um, how you utilize technology in order to, you know, be an information, you know, like you mentioned, Alvin Toffler and Peter Drucker and these guys talk about information workers. People like you and I have become those people, but there's a big percent of, there's unfortunately too large a percent of the U.S. population that is in the outside of this, that doesn't have proper internet, doesn't have proper skills. And so if we're going to change how manufacturing works in the future, it's more likely that people like you and I work in that space than them. The question is, how do we break that digital divide to get them to have a more inclusive economy to where things need to head so that they don't have to end up doing commoditized jobs? Yeah, and in the second half of your book, you go much more into detail about uh, you know your, your 21st century uh, you know American Silk Silk Road, and uh, your vision is very. Um, it's optimistic. It's it's positive. You know, I think it's a good plan. Uh, you talk about peer to peer retails. Some of what's already happening, like with us podcasters, right? I'm about to open a merchandise store. Uh, we ask like value for value proposition. You know, if people like what I'm doing, please do- please donate, and then that keeps us going. Um, and you know, from all parts uh, of of the world. But um, I, you know, I've got a, uh, I guess a criticism here. What happens um, when you, you know the, the system you're talking about? More di- digitalization. You talk about uh, big oil now has become big data and 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 blockchain. We're in this. We're now in this virtual digital technological space, which there's a lot of great things. But you know what happens when governments and corporations start behaving fascist, uh, and you know. Back in 2021, I was blocked from Patreon, so I, I that that way of me making a living was shut. Last year, the Department of Homeland Security blocked me forever from PayPal just because I'm having conversations that they don't like. We're seeing people getting debanked now, and so that's one worry I have in in all of this. Um, do you have any thoughts uh, about some of these developments? Yeah, and I think you should be worried. And, you know, the model that I created isn't a replacement of these big government and big corporate influences. It's an alternative to it. And, you know, there are circumstances where things are going to happen, like you just mentioned. Um, but, the, but you know, my thought is, what what are the alternatives? I mean, unless you create some sort of open source marketplace. so. You know, if, 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 you know, cities like Baltimore and Flint say, well, we're going to create this open source marketplace. Um, 
I'm hoping that that would be looked at as an alternative to Amazon or to government running these things. And, you know, people will raise questions about it. And my response is, yeah, sure, that's a concern. But what is the alternative to that? Because we continue to head down the consolidation path where, you know, all of your social media is done by these guys and all of your, you know, e-commerce is done by those guys. I, I have an optimistic vision that, you know, if people see a different path where um, it's not as much about consolidation as much more of a balance between supply and demand, like supply chains were, you know, a, a while back, then that's the better, not just better economic model, but it's the better societal model. And it's a better technological model where technology is liberated as opposed to consolidated. Yeah, and so so you're saying with your model, it, it would provide uh, alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. So um, all you need is you know a city, some sort of municipality to say we're going to build this community based model. Uh, and again, it's not you know the term community based. Uh, people are like, oh, the government's going to run it. The government's simply going to invest in the capital to allow the individuals to be entrepreneurial and innovative. And that's what capitalism is all about, right? So I had one reviewer who, who told me I was a socialist. And I was like, wait a minute. Like you're enabling individuals to be, to compete in a capitalist model. Like if you actually read Adam Smith, that's the actual definition of capitalism that he talked about. Mercantilism, where it's all consolidated, is not what he considers to be capitalism. So, and my point is, is you allow the community to allow this to flourish, and see how where that goes. Yeah, I've I've had also people email me like, "Are you an anarchist voluntarist?" And I'm like, "No, I I I I don't I don't want to do away with all government. I want the smallest government possible, but you know, we want to make sure you have a good." government and you know th there are benefits to, to government i just you know we don't want a big uh sloppy government but uh yeah i'd I kind of uh but if, the, but if the government laid the infrastructure for individuals to compete and to thrive and to be entrepreneurial that's a great use of government yeah i mean we've got you know a number of things uh you know um so far that we, we've gotten this far with uh uh the government that but that's another discussion uh you know energy you also touch on energy uh how was that important um uh today in, in in the 21st century supply chain well it's interesting is the definition of energy is changing so in this new model you know you're going to have we have these long-tailed supply chains like the the masks that we had shortages of during covid are made in like a few chinese factories so you know it's a long-tailed supply chain where you know, these materials have to have to travel thousands of miles in order for us to use them. So a lot of energy used in that. So we're transitioning from a long tail supply chain to more of a technological supply chain where energy becomes where the supply chain becomes local, but it also becomes more information based and information requires energy. Right. So it's more of a um, I think it's more of a smart energy model. Um, it's a network model of, of communities as opposed to, you know, everything in the, all the pharmaceuticals are made in India or China, and then we have to ship them long, long distances. All right. Um, are, are there any other 
themes that I failed to bring up um, th that you want to get across or, or, or final thoughts? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think when we think of technology, we have to think of how we deploy technology for the public good and the private enterprise. And so how do we balance these two together? You know, how do we create education to balance as well? And I think, you know, the main theme for my book is our supply chains are out of balance. And so across the planet, they're balanced, but they're imbalanced, in fact, in that some places are making things for a dollar an hour, and some places are consuming without making. And so how do we create these environments where across the planet, but specifically in your community, like the one I grew up in, how do we create a model where consumers and um, producers are more in balance? You know, instead of looking at, you know, Baltimore as a place that has crime. I mean, what do you expect people to do that don't have opportunities, right? So how does the government use capital in order to create these balances? And I think if we got one um, lesson from COVID and what's happened with the war, is that these supply chains are out of balance and we need them to better serve not just consumers and stockholders, but citizens and producers or workers. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, as I've mentioned, it's a uh... It's been an enjoyable read your book, and I'm learning something new. Supply chains. Um, I, I, I doesn't seem you don't you don't have a strong social media presence. Is there any place <laughs> to, to to best find you uh, or to get the book? Yeah, um, I mean, I have a stronger presence on LinkedIn, and then um, yeah, I mean, you can go on Amazon and get the book. Um, I've had great conversations with people who've purchased the book, so you can reach me through my email or my LinkedIn. I'm, I. You know, I've actually had um, conversations with communities or organizations in order to, how do we take these these models and take them forward? Actually talking to people in China as well. So even though the book's focusing on the challenges that are happening in the United States, um, some of these same problems with deindustrialization are happening worldwide. So, um, you know, just want to have a conversation on how we create more of a balance and how we consume and produce. Yeah, and, and parts of your solution overlap with uh, you know people in the alternative media community who are trying to come together and build local communities in different parts of the world to sort of um, stave off some of what what's what's been going on in the world. And some of your solutions seem to overlap uh, with theirs. And so um, again, people can get the book "Reinventing the Supply Chain: A 21st Century Covenant with uh, America." Um, anywhere books are sold or in digital or, or physical uh, format. And uh, thank you, Professor Buffington, for being on Geopolitics and Empire. It was quite a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. 
You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.